Hello, this is Kathy Simo, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from recent issues of the Jamestown Post-Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. This first article is a follow-up on one that I shared a bit ago, Unanimous Vote, Ellicott Rescinds Resolution Axing Justice Position by Eric Titchy. Ellicott Town Board members voted unanimously to rescind a resolution that would have eliminated one of the town's two elected judges beginning next year. No one on the board spoke before a roll call was taken Monday. The decision to walk back the resolution came two months after council members had voted to eliminate the position currently occupied by Judge Marilyn Jurassi. A couple dozen supporters of Jurassi and Judge Sally Jarzinski showed up at the April board meeting to protest the move. Town Supervisor Janet Bowman declined to comment when approached by reporters after Monday's town meeting. It was Bowman who called for the original resolution, which was passed in March, though it wasn't listed on the board agenda. She called for the resolution to be rescinded. Jurassi spoke briefly during the meeting's public comment portion. We should not be celebrating or considering this a victory as this situation should never have escalated to this point, she said in prepared remarks. The town board's ill-advised decision to eliminate a justice position has taken a considerable amount of time, energy, and resources, all of which could have been better spent on other matters. This entire ordeal was completely avoidable had the board relied on the expertise of others and not succumb to inaccurate information, innuendos, conjecture, and rumors. Instead, the town board chose to act hastily and without proper consult with key stakeholders, leading to a decision that has shaken our community's faith in their leadership. A registered Democrat, Jurassic's current term as town justice expires at the end of the year. She is seeking re-election, having already served for more than 30 years, while Jarzinski, also a Democrat, has served for 14. <laughs> During April's heavily attended town board meeting, Jurassi and Jarzinski said they were both caught off guard by the resolution eliminating a justice beginning in 2024. Among those who asked council members to reconsider this resolution was Jason Schmidt, Chautauqua County District Attorney. Schmidt noted that Ellicott Town Court is one of the busiest in Chautauqua County. At a town board work session last week, Bowman indicated she was going to ask the resolution be rescinded. Soon after, the resolution was removed from the town's website. 
My next article addresses um, an improvement at the Prendergast Library. Prendergast Library Implementing Improvement Projects by Timothy Frud. The James Prendergast Library is working on a construction project that will feature a new outdoor patio and walkway for community members to enjoy in the coming months. Anne Green, Executive Director, said the James Prendergast Library is constructing a new patio due to the significant growth of the library's outdoor programs in the past several years. We've had an increased attendance at summer outdoor story time, summer lunches, and we've had a lot of special events out there and just lots of people attending, she said. The Jamestown Mobile Market comes and they bring a lot of people to the library and busy programs made for a messy lawn area. So the patio will provide a beautiful new space to hold programs and events or simply for people to come and enjoy our beautiful library. As a result of the excitement and enthusiasm for the library and the programs offered by the library, Green said, the library decided to apply for state aid for library construction funding. After applying for funding, the library was awarded $214,983 in New York State Public Library construction funds. Additionally, the library received matching grants from local foundations. Both the Linnae Foundation and the Sheldon Foundation contributed, with the Linnae Foundation offering $37,200 and the Sheldon Foundation $37,165. The funding received by the Prendergast Library will cover the cost of a new patio, a walkway around the building, built-in benches, a new bicycle rack, built-in trash receptacles, and outdoor lighting. In addition to outdoor construction, the library is upgrading its HVAC system with a portion of the allocated funds. All of these upgrades include a temperature control, installing a smart building management system, updating the HVAC with a dual filtration system, replacing the old system's chiller with modern high-efficiency chiller. In the future, the library will explore more options for increasing sustainability, operations, and improving accessibility in and around the building. While the new patio has not yet been constructed, Green said the outdoor lighting project has already been completed. Once the new patio is constructed in early June, the library will plant community gardens to beautify the space. The Chautauqua Region Community Foundation provided the library with a $4,000 grant toward the community gardens, which will go around the patio. We're very excited about that as well, said Green. She told the Post Journal that the new outdoor patio should be completed prior to this year's community block party. That's a very exciting event, she said. 
will be hosting the second annual Community Block Party on Saturday, June 24, from 11 till 2. We like to celebrate our community in the library and community in, excuse me, we like to celebrate our community in the library and community members can learn about all other organizations. There will be a lot of fun activities so everyone can enjoy the day. This year's Community Block Party will feature dedication of the new outdoor patio in memory of Jim Roselli, a former supporter and board member of the James Prendergast Library and a major advocate of Jamestown's community. It's very important, she said. We have a lot of community leaders coming. He was always in the library. His daughter Julie said, we always knew where to find Dad at the library. Jim himself always said, the most important card in your wallet is your library card. In addition to providing an enhanced experience at the block party, Green explained that the outdoor patio and gardens will beautify the space surrounding the library and make the library a beautiful place for community members to enjoy. The patio will be used throughout the year for various programs, crafting classes, book clubs, music classes, and story times. It will be a wonderful place to come relax, enjoy a book, meet family and friends, or a special place just for the community to enjoy, she said. It's going to be beautiful. We're very excited about it. It's a big project. Something else is happening in downtown Jamestown in the area of Northwest Arena actually in Northwest Arena. This article is titled Program Director Outlines Vision for the Zone by Timothy Fred, Post Journal. With the Zone planning for an official launch in 2024, John Kinder, Program Director for the Zone at Northwest Arena, believes the new children's space will have a major impact on families in the community. Asked what people can expect once the zone is operational, Kinder said one of the first things that comes to mind is Dave and Busters, a popular game and entertainment business chain with advanced technology. Just a really fun indoor play space for kids something that's unprecedented truly in this area, he said. We don't have anything like it. I'd argue we don't have anything like it in the entire Northeast. It's a 6,200-square-foot indoor play environment where kids will learn about sports and STEAM principles and be introduced to nutrition facts. Kinder said children and youth will start their navigation of the zone by entering the lobby, which will feature a locker room where children will be introduced to nutrition facts and be able to play interactive games. Beyond the lobby, Kinder said guests will enter through the sports tunnel, 
where kids will have their name introduced and will enter into a very strong technological play space. It's very tech savvy and very technologically advanced, he said. They'll get wristbands upon registering. Those wristbands are like smart wristbands, so they can tap into various exhibits and more or less interact with them and really personalize their experience as they kind of maneuver through this play space. After guests enter through the sports tunnel, they will enter the free play zone, which Kinder describes as an open area with a variety of hoops and balls for children to play with. There will be floor and wall markings for children and youth to test and measure their wingspan, vertical leap, and broad jump. To the left, there will be a safe enclosure for what we'll call our toddler bullpen. Safe, soft play enclosure for our young guests. There will be interacting as well as games that are going to help their sensory development. It's just that educational component woven throughout the entire play space. The zone will also feature a rock climbing wall and a two-tiered climbing structure with a digital scavenger hunt with a play space that will try to capture all the sports you can think of, there will be plenty for children and youth to enjoy. Kinder said the Northwest Arena is anticipating the zone to be pretty busy. As families come to the arena for figure skating, ice hockey, and various programs, the zone will provide a place for families with younger children to have a space to play while other activities or events are being attended. According to Kinder, the smart wristband will allow families to drop their children off at the zone and keep tabs on them through the wristband while they are, say, across the street at the National Comedy Center. Additionally, the zone is planning on hosting birthday parties, allowing families to rent their space. Kinder believes the zone will have a major impact on the community once it is officially open for the public. I think it's going to have an incredible community impact, not only from the physical nature, being able to have year-round indoor leisure activity, but also from a community development standpoint and the economy and adding business for local restaurants, storefronts, things like that, he said. Just given the influx of people that are going to be coming in to experience the zone, it's going to help push businesses to some outer businesses as well. We're really excited about that and the fact that it's truly going to be a multi-purpose community attraction. The concept of the zone came from multiple conversations with Northwest Arena's board a few years ago. As a nonprofit organization, Kinder said Northwest Arena's goal is always to work towards self sustainability, which led to conversations about the creation of the zone. 
Kinder added that the board was interested in designing the space where children could play while their parents were at the arena for events with older siblings. It really was birthed from the idea that small, it was really birthed from that an idea that small and kind of has evolved and transformed into something that I don't think anyone could foresee. We're super excited about it. In addition, the zone will have educational programming housed within its space. Some programming may include resume building nights, workforce development workshops, opportunities for partnerships and collaboration with local youth development agencies, such as the Boys and Girls Club or Striders. We've already started building those relationships with those folks, he said, because we're in no way viewing ourselves as competition, but rather to supplement and add value to the existing work already being done on that front. We've already started holding field trips of different events within the zone, both educational and physical. Kinder also said that Northwest Arena has become a viable vendor through the Cooperative Service Program under BOCES. As a vendor under BOCES, local schools can visit Northwest Arena on field trips that would be funded by state aid, allowing students to enjoy ice skating, bumper cars, and physical and educational workshops in the zone. We look forward to hitting the ground running once we're actually officially open, he said. This next article is also a follow-up on information I shared with you a couple of readings ago. Dulce outlines next steps in safer grant discussion by Timothy Fred of the Post Journal. The Jamestown City Council is preparing to meet with Federal Emergency Management Agency, known as FEMA, regarding the Staffing for Adequate Fire and Emergency Response Grant, known as the SAFER Grant, prior to a vote this month. Council President Anthony Dulce told the Post-Journal that Mayor Eddie Sundquist was planning on meeting with FEMA on Wednesday to present the agency with the Council's questions prior to a Zoom call meeting that will be scheduled between FEMA and the Council. The plan is to try and find a time when they're available and most, if not all, of the Council would be available, whether that's on a work session or on some other prescribed time where we could have a special meeting to come in and just specifically ask questions to FEMA and get some information about the FEMA grant. Asked about the mayor's recent statements regarding council tabling the SAFER grant, 
by bringing up new questions during April's voting session, Dulles indicated that the council's questioning of administration officials during the voting session was not what caused the SAFER grant to be tabled again. I don't think it's so much that, he said, because we don't have a comptroller, but I think there were some questions because there were some delays about the financial impact. So the council was waiting for those as well as some of the other questions to be answered. It seems like we're getting vague answers. Dulce said the question regarding whether the city is required to hire eight additional firefighters in order to receive the safer grant or whether the exact number of firefighters is negotiable with FEMA was not clearly answered prior to or during the voting session. Additional questions came out of that meeting. One of them is, do we have to hire eight firefighters? Will the grant allow us to hire fewer? If so, how many? I know that the chief and administration had to submit the roster with a number of current firefighters. So is it a total number that we have to meet or can that be reduced down at some point? Dulce said both Sunquist and Deputy Fire Chief Matthew Kuhn indicated during the voting session that there might be some room for negotiation with FEMA regarding the number of firefighters required under the SAFER grant. Asked about the mayor's recent indication that a compromise of fewer than eight would most likely not be possible, Dole said, that's not what was told to us last meeting. He explained that Sunquist said he would find out from FEMA if a compromise would be possible. City Council has not received any additional indication from the mayor regarding a compromise since the voting session. The council has also received no official word from FEMA regarding a potential compromise on the number of additional firefighters hired under the SAFER grant. According to Dulce, a compromise, a potential compromise on the SAFER grant would be determined by whether the council could hire fewer additional firefighters, as well as the impact that would have on staffing for the fire department. We did hire four additional firefighters through ARPA, so we're already up four from what we've been at literally for the last 20 years. If we were to hire four more, how would that impact the staffing level moving forward. Most importantly, how does it impact the ability to run a second ambulance? Another question the City Council has is whether the City would be required to keep all eight additional firefighters through to the end of the SAFER grant, or 
whether the city would be able to slowly reduce the number of firefighters through attrition as firefighters retire over the next few years. Additionally, Dulce said, City Council plans on asking FEMA what is the likelihood for Jamestown to be awarded another SAFER grant in three years. Before Council can make an informed decision, he indicated that Council wants to know the percentage of other municipalities that have received SAFER grants more than once. I think the big concern that Council has is the sustainability issue. After the grant runs out, how do we pay for this? We do realize that with a second ambulance, there will be some additional revenue, but it's certainly not going to be enough to cover the overall cost of all these firemen. So that's going to leave a huge hole in the budget, and we're going to have to figure something out. Dulce said public safety is top concern. Most constituents in Jamestown will discuss that with council members. Public safety is certainly a priority for city council. He emphasized city council also has to consider the financial impact of all this and long-term sustainability of the SAFER grant, especially as the city is very close to its constitutional taxing limit. This is a very important decision, Dole said. Again, it's not that the council doesn't want to do this. It's just they want to make sure the decision they make not only enhances public safety, but is something that is sustainable, that we can count on moving forward to be able to keep going and be able to afford this and keep that level of service. 20 years ago, we had to make difficult decisions about our staffing in the police and fire divisions, and it wasn't easy. Nobody wants to see us have to cut down the road. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Jamestown Post-Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. My name is Kathy Simo. This next article involves the property that Crawford Furniture Manufacturing Plant once occupied on Allen Street in Allen Street Extension in Jamestown. EPA reports hint at final plight of Crawford Complex. It was once a pillar of Jamestown's rich furniture industry, but by 2021, the former Crawford manufacturing plant on Allen Street had become a clear hazard in the eyes of city officials. On just over two acres of land, the site had become a common spot for squatters seeking temporary shelter. It also believed trespassers often accessed the grounds to scrap metal for off-site resale. 
According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, that's the EPA, the Allen Street complex housed numerous 55-gallon drums and 30-gallon containers, some void of labels or identification. Containers discovered in one of the concrete rooms on the first floor of the main building did have labels identifying contents as flammable liquid and hazardous waste. Samples collected by the EPA in January 2022 from some of those drums indicated the presence of acetone and toluene, both irritants and extremely flammable in small amounts. Also detected was chromium, a heavy metal used in industrial applications such as plating. Due to deteriorating conditions of the structures, the city, in June of 21, asked the EPA to perform an evaluation. A tour turned up collapsed walls, densely packed floors with airplane parts, as well as raw materials and partially processed furniture components from Crawford's days of operating the facility. Efforts to address many of the hazards identified at 1061 Allen Street before a fire through, tore through the property on November 16, 2022, are outlined in numerous reports by the EPA. Though the plant's final plight was well documented in breathtaking photographs and video showing massive flames shooting from the main building, the EPA reports offer further detail into what had been stored on the property and the steps taken by its owner to remove containers and address asbestos that had been identified. Allen Street Development LLC acquired the property and its contents in July of 2017 after Crawford Furniture Manufacturing filed bankruptcy several years earlier. The new owner, according to numerous EPA pollution and situation reports, the new owner used the site to store items purchased at auction. Items included various airplane parts, such as seats, restrooms, beverage carts, and body panels. However, the property was used for more than just storage. The facility started to be accessed by squatters, vagrants, and scrappers who caused damage to the exterior doors, walls, windows, and loading area, the EPA said in a report they released in late November of last year. Based on vandalism and deterioration of the structure, ease of access to interior spaces and use by trespassers and squatters, the city expressed concerns to the property owner. In April of 21, 
the city's DOD, Department of Development, issued a notice to vacate. Two months later, the city asked the EPA to form a removal site evaluation. Dating back to 1883, the property was used for industrial and commercial purposes. The overall footprint included a main four-story building surrounded by additional structures of various sizes. In one tour, the EPA noted, damage and neglect is evident in nearly all of the structures as windows and doors have been removed, roofs have collapsed, and walls have fallen. By January of 22, Allen Street Development indicated it was willing to address on-site containers. A tour of the complex held 10 days later on January 20th, 22, included Allen Street Development, the EPA, city officials, and the State Department of Environmental Conservation. Between January of 22 and July of 22, the EPA provided oversight of the voluntary removal action performed by Allen Street Development, in which most of the containers were removed. However, by August of 22, additional drums of corrosive material, as well as paints, adhesives, and compressed gas cylinders were identified. In addition, samples of roofing material indicated the presence of asbestos. By the end of October, weeks before the fire broke out, the EPA said the owner failed to meet self-imposed deadlines to remove the remaining containers and address the asbestos. Communication between the EPA and Allen Street Development then became limited. The EPA's involvement is part of the comprehensive environmental response, Compensation and Liability Act. The status provides the federal super fund to clean up hazardous waste sites and power to the EPA to seek out responsible parties for release and cooperation in the cleanup. The city has two open cases tied to the former Crawford property, one against Allen Street Development, the other against Richard Rusiniak, who the city contends is the principal owner. Last month, attorney Dale Brodigan indicated to Judge George Panabianco in City Housing Court that Allen Street Development is willing to plead guilty to various code violations that have accumulated prior to November's fire that tore through the complex. Panabianco adjourned matters till June when a plea and sentencing hearing is scheduled. The court also will receive, will review briefs to be submitted by Brodigan and Elliot Raimondo, City Corporation Counsel, regarding Rusiniak and what, if any, liability he may have after the fire.
My client is looking forward to having this matter put behind, and it is hopeful that an amicable revolution can be reached, Brodigan said. City officials are hopeful the site can be one day redeveloped in the future. This article is about a new position in the city um, management levels. City nuisance officer starting. Second ambulance search started. The city of Jamestown may soon have a new second ambulance and a quality of life officer in its police department. Following the city council's recent approval of a second city ambulance during April's voting session, City Councilwoman Kim Eklund asked Deputy Fire Chief Matthew Kuhn if the city has made any progress regarding purchasing a second ambulance. Kuhn informed council members that the fire department has been doing some shopping for a second ambulance and has determined that the ambulance will go out to bid. Asked what size ambulance the city is looking to purchase, Kuhn said the ambulance will be a mini-mod. It will be a Type 3, which is similar to the one we have now, where it will have a box with a cutaway cab, he said. It will be pretty close in size to what we currently run. The patient treatment area is 150 inches long. That serves us well. We don't really expect to have a larger vehicle to accommodate what we need to do. Asked if there will be enough storage for firefighter equipment on the ambulance, Kuhn assured council members that firefighters will have enough storage on the second ambulance for any necessary equipment. He added that having a shorter vehicle helps with maneuverability, especially around the emergency room area. Asked about the lead time for purchase of a vehicle, Kuhn said timing depends on availability. One of the vendors we have spoken with feels they may have something ready for us in one to two months, possibly, he said. It's really just kind of depending on availability of vehicles. There's still a general consensus among the industries of about six months. Obviously, if we wanted a custom-built vehicle, that would be one or two years out. We're not seeking a custom-built vehicle. It will be a vehicle that will be similar to the one that we currently have. Mayor Eddie Sundquist added that the anticipated length of time for the city to purchase and receive a second ambulance for the fire department is actually better than the length of time for some of the equipment the city purchased for the DPW, which he said is surprising. In addition to the update regarding the fire department's second ambulance, Public Safety Chairman Brent Sheldon presented an update regarding the long-expected quality-of-life officer.
The city's nuisance and quality of life officer was originally expected to start by the end of last year. However, the position was delayed due to a shortage of eligible candidates. Now, with the start of summer quickly approaching, Police Chief Timothy Jackson informed City Council's Public Safety Committee that the nuisance and quality of life officer will start the job soon. We received a report from the police chief that the quality of life or noise police officer will be starting May 26, Sheldon said. This officer is a veteran Jamestown Police Department officer. He will be working between 5 p.m. and 1 a.m., starting right before Memorial Day, and responding to complaints about loud music, cars, motorcycles, fireworks, etc. Sheldon explained the quality of life officer will not only respond to complaints from city residents, but will also be proactive by driving around neighborhoods. We're really excited that this is going to start right before summer really kicks off here, he said. This next article might be more receptive to seniors out there listening. It's about the EPIC program uh, in New York State. There is no byline to this article. It's in the senior news section of today, Monday, May 15th newspaper. Over the past few years, we have been seeing rising costs almost everywhere we go. One of the most concerning is the rising cost of life-saving medication. To combat rising drug prices, and ensure the well-being of our older Americans, New York State has a program called Elderly Pharmaceutical Insurance Coverage, generally referred to as EPIC, Elderly Pharmaceutical Insurance Coverage. EPIC helps more than 325,000 income-eligible participants age 65 and older to supplement their out-of-pocket Medicare Part D drug plan costs. Older Americans can apply for EPIC at any time of the year and must be enrolled or eligible to be enrolled in a Medicare Part D drug plan to receive EPIC benefits and maintain coverage. This results in additional savings for members to purchase needed medications. EPIC provides secondary coverage for Medicare Part D and EPIC-covered drugs purchased, purchased after any Medicare Part D deductible is met. It can help pay the Medicare Part D drug plan premiums for members with incomes up to $23,000 if single, $29,000 if married. Higher income members 
are required to pay their own Part D premiums, but EPIC provides premium assistance by lowering their EPIC deductible. EPIC has two plans based on income. The FEE plan, F-E-E plan, is for members with incomes up to $20,000 if single or $26,000 if married. The deductible plan is for members with incomes ranging from $20,001 to $75,000 if single or $26,001 to $100,000 if married. This is the deductible plan. With these plans, co-payments can range from as low as $3, $7, $15, and $20 based on the out-of-pocket cost after Medicare Part D has been billed. Remember that the Office for Aging Services can help clarify any of the confusing parts. We are only a phone call away. It's easy to join this program. To qualify, you must be a New York State resident, 65 years of age or older, have an annual income below 75000 single or 100000 married, and not receiving full Medicaid benefits. You may apply for EPIC at any time during the year, even if you do not have a Medicare Part D plan. Once enrolled, members will receive a special enrollment period from Medicare, allowing them to join a Medicare Part D drug plan. If you have union or retiree benefits, Contact your benefit office to see if you're eligible to join a Part D drug plan. Then complete the application that can be found, and here's a website, https colon forward slash forward slash www.health.newyork.gov forward slash forms, forward slash D-O-H dash five zero eight zero period P-D-F. Mail that to the EPIC address found on the application. Probably the easier way would be to call the toll-free EPIC helpline at one 800 332-3742, Monday through Friday, 8 till 5. I'm sure that uh, the Office of the Aging would help any of you if you needed more information on EPIC and needed an application uh, procured. This next article for seniors especially for seniors, is about the SNAP program, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Are you over 60? SNAP is for you. SNAP helps New Yorkers buy food, 
New York's older adults are a very large and diverse group of people. Seniors may encounter many barriers when applying for SNAP, including transportation, computer access, health concerns, we can help. The SNAP program issues electronic benefits that can be used like cash to purchase food. SNAP helps low-income working people, senior citizens, disabled, and others feed their families. Eligibility and benefit levels are based on household size, income, and other factors. SNAP benefits can help you put healthy food on the table. If you are eligible, you can get monthly benefits to spend at local grocery stores and farmers markets, but you must meet certain income requirements. The amount of benefits you receive depends on things like your household size, income, and expenses. Benefits are provided through an EBT card, similar to a bank debit card or credit card. An account would be set up for you, and every month your benefits are deposited right onto your account. Nutrition Outreach and Education Program offers one-on-one helping help with applying for SNAP. We can tell you if you may be eligible, help you with the documents you need, help you with your application. Our service can assist with including phone interviews, online submission, and assistance in submitting documents. The SNAP program is the nation's most important and effective anti-hunger program. There were temporary improvements during COVID-19 in response to job and income losses. These changes have already ended or will expire soon. The cut in SNAP due to pandemic benefits left many struggling for again with more food insecurity. So it's important that you add in any medical deductions that you can. Many older adults use SNAP with help in buying groceries. Some feel that they may be taking benefits away from others, but it's an entitlement program like Medicare or Social Security. If you are eligible and you apply, you'll get a benefit. It will not change the amount of SNAP dollars that other people get. When you buy groceries with SNAP, you're bringing federal dollars back to our community. When you buy groceries with SNAP, you're helping the local grocery stores and farmers stay in business. For more information, call New York Connects Helpline at 716-753-4582. New York Connects is the place to call to get the help you need. It assists people of all ages who have long-term needs and want to stay in the community. Information is confidential and focused on the consumer's needs. This is brought to you by Chautauqua County Office for the Aging and Chautauqua County Department of Social Services.
My final article for tonight is a guest essay by Linnea Haskin. It is entitled, Don't Forget, Jamestown Was Built on Immigration. When I was young, my fourth grade teacher asked our class, tasked our class a project focused on the history of our family. I learned through that assignment that my grandfather, Gunnard, had traveled alone at the age of 16 from Sweden, escaping famine and economic hardship in search for a better life. I am reminded of this story and the courage of my family when I spend time with my new friends, individuals from Colombia, all of whom traveled to this country, some alone, fleeing economic hardship, war, threats to their lives in search of a better life. Many of us in Jamestown have this story. We know the sacrifice our parents and grandparents made. If you are like me, you have never once held judgment for those sacrifices, but rather immense pride. And as we welcome new neighbors to Jamestown, we as a community could benefit from remembering that pride. On May 2, the Biden administration announced a plan to send 1,500 troops to the U.S.-Mexico border ahead of an expected surge of migrants once Title 42 expires next week. Title 42, utilized extensively under the Trump era, was challenged under the Supreme Court in 2022 when the Biden administration attempted to end its use, which primarily had circumvented immigration law to force migrants back across the border under the guise of preventing spread of COVID-19. As the pandemic officially ends, so will Title 42 on May 11. As Senator Bob Menendez has stated, there is already a humanitarian crisis in the Western Hemisphere, and deploying military personnel only signals that migrants are a threat that require our nation's troops to contain. While I agree that we should end Title 42 and open our borders to those who are fleeing from dangerous and life-threatening circumstances, the reality is how do we support an influx of migrants, particularly when our current system is complicated, lengthy, insufficient, and largely rooted in systemic xenophobic policies and implementation? The Biden administration is doing itself no favors in deploying troops and continuing to waste time in finding a sustainable solution. Conservative leaders, including our Senator Borrello, are making the situation worse, continuing the false narrative that migrants are invaders, criminals, unworthy of the American dream. Despite the belief of many, migrants are not here to invade our country. They do not automatically receive public assistance upon their arrival. In fact, what I am learning from the journey of my friends is quite the opposite. Migrants largely cannot legally work, 
and thus are not stealing jobs from hard-working Americans. Rather, they are often forced into exploitive labor, working upwards of 20 hours a day in back-breaking agricultural or hospitality work. Jamestown is no different than any other city in the sense that community is hard to navigate for newcomers. Community programs are often available only in English. Medical offices have no easily streamlined translation services. Providers lack training and cultural competency, a disservice to both client and advocate. The barriers are many. The transitions to a new and better life can be traumatic and confusing. That said, I have been beyond proud of how our community has welcomed our new neighbors. Local hairdressers have offered free haircuts. Restaurants are going above and beyond to host birthday parties. Local faith groups have provided free clothing, hygiene products, school supplies. St. Luke's Episcopal Church has organized a fund drive, which has collected over $10,000, going directly to supporting my new friend's housing and food needs. And while this has been a beautiful thing, it's not enough. As Bianca Vasquez, organizer of Sanctuary DMV, a migrant justice volunteer group in Washington, D.C., has put it, Without significant federal response, families will be sleeping in the streets. This problem has been created also in part due to Department of Homeland Security's unwillingness to actually invest in resettlement and acknowledge that people are choosing to stay here. My new friends have chosen to make Jamestown their home, as my grandfather did 70 years ago. Their children are members of our children's class. They worship alongside us at our churches. They share a love of the same music and movies. They love their families as we love ours. They deserve our support. They deserve an asylum-seeking system that functions. They deserve a better life. We know what, we must, what must be done. Now we must act. Linnea Haskin is director of the Jamestown Public Market, and which is a program of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from recent issues of the Jamestown Post-Journal. Your reader has been me, Kathy Seymour. Thank you for listening. <laughs>